Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have Matt Klein with me. Matt has previously worked for probably some of my favorite publications in the past. Um, And I heard about the newsletter, I believe through Axios or Financial Times, somebody referenced it. And I've been following your stuff for the last few months and it's terrific. So I'm excited to have you on the show to talk about some big kind of macroeconomic trends that we're seeing. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So why don't we give a little bit of background on yourself um, context-wise before we jump right into some of the uh, issues at hand? Sure. So I originally got interested in economics and finance sort of by uh, coincidence. I was looking for uh, a job in the summer and, and when I was in college, and I ended up narrowing down two options. One was Bridgewater Associates, and the other one was the Defense Intelligence Agency. And I really didn't know, you know, what either which one would be, you know, the best option. But uh, I, I knew people who had actually done the internship at Bridgewater, and you know, the, the DIA was relatively opaque about what actually the job would would have entailed uh, as an intern. So I thought, you know, why not try this? That turned out to be the summer of 2008, which was a fascinating time to be getting into all this stuff. And uh, then I just got really, you know, hooked, both because I think it's really interesting to see how all these systems work and connect people, but also sort of a practical thing of, you know, watching it all blow up and then leading to this massive downturn and all people losing their jobs and their homes. I think this is actually really important and I, I really should be trying to understand this. And that's what ended up making me move from, you know, being on sort of a buy side role, being more public facing and trying to figure out what, you know, what is going on. And you know, explaining it to people as as best as I can, 
and so you know went from there through a couple other paths but eventually ended up um you know being able to write professionally about it and uh, i was recently most recently i was the uh, economics commentator at barons and uh, i left a couple months ago to launch this uh subscription newsletter product called the overshoot and that's what i've been doing for the past couple months yeah, and your stuff is terrific. So we'll tee it up at the end and give people a way to, to find out more about that. But strongly encourage my listeners to check out the Overshoot uh, newsletter. It's it's terrific. And I really want, I, I want to have you back on because there's a lot to unpack in your writing. But the one that I, I really have been focused on since it came out a week or two ago is this inequality, interest rates, aging, and the role of central banks. These These big overarching macro thematic issues that I think have been leading us up to, to this point in many ways. Could you just kind of comment on a high level? Okay, how do inflation, interest rates, demographics, and central banks, how have they worked together? And maybe since, you know, I go as far back as maybe the 90s with the Asian debt crisis, which, you know, ultimately led to the dot-com bubble, which then led to the 08 great financial crisis. And now with COVID, this is going to be an unfair question, but how are they all working together? Maybe not working together right now. Sure. So there's a, I think probably one of the greatest onion uh, articles of all time is uh, right around, I think it was 2008 it was, you know, desperate nation cries out for a new bubble to invest in. <laughs> and you know, I think it's interesting because, I mean, it's funny, but there's also a grain of truth there in terms of the dynamics you just described. And I think the question is why, like, why is that what's happened? And, you know, you can get it in a lot of ways, but I think, you know, fundamentally it's that if you have um, a society where a lot of income, a lot of spending power, I should say, is going to entities, whether they're individuals or businesses or whatever, that are more likely to buy financial assets than goods and services, then that ends up leading to a lot of very interesting and strange and weird distortions in the economy. And if that occurs at the same time as you have a sort of political intellectual shift or decision that the main way that you respond to downturns and to manage business cycles is um, through monetary policy, in other words, you lower interest rates to make borrowing and spending more attractive, you have those two things interacting and you end up in a situation that I think explains a lot of what we've seen in the past few decades of interest rates steadily going down further because you have to, you know, takes more juice. Um, you have debt going up really dramatically, whether it's household or government or corporate, um, depends on the country, but this is a global phenomenon. And at the same time, you also have a situation where, you know, it becomes self-reinforcing where asset prices are going to be, if your tool is essentially to increase debt and asset prices, to boost spending on actual stuff that people want and that actually employ people. But you also have the sort of countervailing force of so much spending power is to people who don't want to buy stuff, they want to buy more assets. That ends up leading to, as I said, the self-reinforcing process of lower interest rates, more debt, more potential economic weakness and fragility. And so this is a phenomenon. I mean, Larry Summers recently has kind of reversed himself a bit, but I mean, he, he made this point about 10 years ago, the secular, a little less than 10 years ago, the secular stagnation. And that was really the argument he was trying to get at, which was, it's weird that in the past 20 plus years or so, we haven't really had, we basically alternated between sort of moderate growth and low inflation and then very weak growth and low inflation, but we haven't really had kind of traditional big booms. I mean, we have a bust, but not booms. Um, 
And the question is, you know, what's driving that? And I think the these kinds of shifts explain a lot of that. And some of that might be due to sort of political economy decisions that actually lead to changes in, in distribution of income. Some of it might be due to demographic changes that lead to distribution, you know, changes in what people want to buy and spend, that sort of thing. There's some political elements too in terms of just, you know, ideological. I, I wrote a book, Michael Pettis, that came out last year called Trade Wars or Class Wars. It looks at some of these dynamics in different countries. And some of it is, um, you know, the, if you look at it in Europe, for example, there's definitely an ideological component about how governments should borrow and spend or not. And you see some of that in the United States as well. So there's a lot of factors at play here, but the net effect is, it seems like a lot of these things are connected. And, and one of the ways it shows up, which I guess is you know fitting for us who really like paying attention to financial markets is that financial markets are really one way we can really cle clearly see how all these forces come together and interact. And that shows up in things like steadily declining uh, real interest and nominal interest rates. So the way I think about it to some extent is we have this, you know, these two huge generational cohorts, the baby boomers and the millennials, like I'm a millennial. And to your point, the baby boomers are getting older. Their consumption phase is waning, which is disinflationary. And the millennial generation, we're now fighting against the monster we created, which is kind of big tech, which their whole job is to make things cheaper and easier, which is disinflationary. And we have globalization at the same time, which is making things cheaper and easier, theoretically. And to your point, from especially from a goods and services standpoint. Meanwhile, you've got the Fed, who they've taken rates to zero. They invented quantitative easing to inject more liquidity in the marketplace in an effort to drive this growth, which like you referenced with Larry Summers has been non-existent for 20 plus years. Is that an accurate structure or, or kind of guardrail in this conversation? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's basically right. I mean, just to sort of bring it back to what you were saying before about how the, you know, the, the sort of endless chain of bubbles or things like that. I mean, I think one of the things that's a lot of people in sort of, the establishment central banking community miss is that the downturn we had after 2000 was actually very severe. The reason it wasn't, it didn't appear as severe at the time and why a lot of people think that, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal is because you had the housing bubble inflating at the same time. And that essentially offsets some of the impact. But even with that, you still have business investment really plunge during that period, you, you know, corp, people talk a lot about corporate debt borrowing a lot in sort of the past 10, you know, eight years or whatever, right? But between 2000 and 2007, corporate borrowing was close to zero. Uh, you basically have all these, you know, WorldCom and so forth default. And then either it's, you know, you can say the market dries up, although I think it's also companies just retrench and they cut back on investment pretty severely. The thing that offset that was the housing bubble, but even with the housing bubble, consumer spending was quite weak. I mean, that's the thing that's really striking, right? You have, you know, there's been great research done about, you know, how much of the housing bubble inflated consumer spending relative to what it otherwise would have been. And it's like 10% at, at sort of the, the, the peak of the bubble in sort of 05, 04, 05, 06. But even with that, that huge positive impulse, consumer spending is, you know, barely in line with the sort of the long pre, you know, there's a line from the um, Fed transcripts, I think it's from I think it's from 2004, where the uh, vice chairman at the time says, yeah, we know we're inflating 
um, a housing bubble, but that's okay. It's deliberate. Like we're trying to do that because the rest of the economy is weak and it's the only way we can, you know, hit our targets. And that's the tool we have, um, which I think is really, I mean, maybe they didn't fully appreciate what it is they were exactly doing. And there are other factors that work besides, you know, that policy, but I mean, it sort of reflects the limitations of, I think the policy framework and sort of the circumstances in which those people were operating at the time that they, you know, if your only tool is let's encourage more borrowing, you have these underlying forces that make the economy very weak. You then end up with this kind of ridiculous situation where it might seem okay for a couple of years and then, you know, blows up. So do you think we are in an endless cycle where, you know, every 10 years we're doomed to revisit this fact pattern and scenario and we're just going to, okay. Uh, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting, and this is, you know, again, in the book, trade wars or class wars, we do talk about this a bit. I think there is sort of a way out, which we might be actually have sort of inadvertently explored in the pandemic, which is if the federal government does the borrowing and spending, in other words, instead of relying on monetary policy, which you could think of as encourage the private sector to borrow and spend, but your fiscal policy, which is essentially have the government do it. I mean, that's, that's one way of distinguishing those things. Um, that might actually work better because uh, in practice, what it means is that you're, I mean, the federal government's balance sheet is much more resilient than any individual household or business. They don't have to worry about rollover risk in practice. Um, they always have the resources to, uh, you know, service the debt if they need it. And in fact, their borrowing costs tend to be countercyclical, which is also a nice feature. You know, if, if uh, a business decides they need to borrow money when their sales go down, they're going to have to pay a premium. The government does it. It's the, I mean, interest rate, interest payments as a share of uh, GDP in the U.S. or in absolute dollars, for that matter, are lower now than they were in the 90s, even though the debt's much higher. So, you know, that that gives you, um, I mean, so there are a lot of reasons to think that, okay, in that case, you want to have borrowing being done by that entity. And we've seen that in the pandemic. There was this huge amount of borrowing and distribution of money, to mostly to households, but also businesses effectively because, you know, they cut back on spending, but they still got some sales. And, you know, I think that actually it's quite positive. It'll be interesting to see how much it holds up, you know, how much household savings are sustained. But I mean, what we saw initially was a big decline in consumer debt, big increase in, in liquid household savings, and a big increase in consumer purchases of goods that, you know, they presumably wanted. And all of this showed up in a period with, you know, elevated household savings. So basically the government's balance sheet took the hit to improve the private sector's balance sheet. And in at least in, you know, as of sort of the beginning of 2021, I, I don't know, I don't think we have the latest date, the, the Q2 data yet come out, I think next week, but um, total debt to GDP in the US is actually not higher now than it was say 10 years ago, despite that basically just had a shift in indebtedness. Uh, and so I think that's actually could be quite helpful. I don't know if it's enough, but it's the kind of thing, you know, if you want to draw an analogy, go further back, like look at the Great Depression, which is in many ways similar to the dynamics of what happened after 2008, you had in the 1920s, you had a big increase in borrowing, um, both by households and businesses. You had, you know, a little element of a tech bubble going on, but, or, you know, ex excitement about it. it. It implodes pretty dramatically. There's a lot of excess debt. The policy response was different, um, which is why the, you know, the downturn is much more severe. But, you know, you look ahead years later, actually ended up based on the same place um, in terms of growth. So even though the, the downturn was, was more severe, the snapback was was also bigger. So what really broke the US out of that sort of the long 1930s, it was 
the massive amount of spending and mobilization associated with World War II. You have, this is something I wrote about for Barron's <clears throat> back in the spring, you have a situation where uh, wage and salary income basically double uh, in the span of a few years because basically you're, you're, you're conscripting a lot of people and you're paying them, whether they're in the military or they're producing things. And in general, there isn't actually that much inflation. I mean, there's some, but most of it's just a lot of people have more money. They save a lot of it. Uh, they repay, you know, we don't know exactly, you know, what they, what they were paying down debt or what have you, because the data don't, on, on those things don't go back that far, but there's a big increase in saving. There's a big increase in consumption, but it's much less than the increase in income. That's why the saving goes up. And then what happens is you basically have this long period of prosperity afterwards, where whatever the problems that had been the case, holding back business investment and household spending were essentially wiped out. And the government, yeah, took on a huge amount of debt. There was some inflation, but on the whole, it actually worked out really well. And you finally got over that, you know, the, the depression and that long. And, I, and it's interesting because if you look at the time what people were saying in say 1940 or 1939, they didn't think this was possible. They were thinking, okay, this is as good as it gets, which is, I think, in many ways, similar to the world we were in in, say, 2019. But now I think people sort of are opening themselves to the possibility that this actually is not as good as it gets. It doesn't have to be. Um, you know, the scale of what was done in response to the pandemic was much smaller than World War II, both in uh, absolute term, you know, as, as a share of, of income and also, of course, in it, its timing. But, you know, I mean, there could be the potential for more things like that that would be constructive. I don't think we're doomed, in other words, to, you know, be locked into this cycle of, you know, bubbles that are lead to weak growth um, and then busts that lead to even weaker growth. I think that's, that's essentially a choice and it's, we, could, we could make a different choice. So do you think some kind of what you refer to as neutral inflation is possible in the near term or are these disinflationary factors too much to overcome until we as the millennial generation cycle out and the demographic factors or pressures are, are lessened? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, like, I guess that you can go back. I mean, arguably, we're seeing a bunch of inflation now, right? Temporarily, some of its base effects. I mean, a lot of it has to do with sort of idiosyncratic factors, but it's funny because no one really seems to have a really have a good model of what inflation is caused by. You know, there was a paper a few years ago I remember reading that was that was funny, which basically said if you you're the best way to forecast inflation since you know 1990 or something is just to take past inflation and just like add a random walk on it. There's no like it's just you know sort of two plus you know some random thing. So you know there are a lot of things that we can point to that are driving in different directions, but it's it's interesting that that seems to be generally the case even now i think we can sort of point to some idiosyncratic factors that are temporarily creating issues but you know i don't know if that's necessarily changing i mean some of it i mean i think also you know to be clear that inflation is not something we should really want for its own sake i mean rising prices can be annoying for a lot of people i mean it's more like what's expected right you know if you have a bunch of people take on debts with a certain interest rate and the expectation is that your incomes are going to grow relative to that interest rate in some way and then it turns out your incomes grow a lot less and then because your incomes are growing a lot less insufficient, you know, the reason to want inflation is to avoid that outcome. But, you know, it can go the other way too. Like you have too much inflation, that's just really problematic for people. So I don't know. I suppose, I mean, as, as a proxy for growth, right? right? I mean, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. And sure. you've got like the Big Mac index, Big Mac index that the economist uses. But I, I, I'm with you. Inflation is really confusing to me because, you know, this transitory concept, but also inflation it seems unequal as well in terms of how it impacts people. Because I know as somebody who is a top earner, private school, healthcare, housing, 
that inflation feels pretty real, but on a lot of other goods and services, it doesn't. So I think it, it just doesn't impact the same generational cohorts as it does others, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a generational element too, but I mean, just in general, there's so much variation in what it is we choose to buy and how we spend our money. There are differences in prices based on regional differences. I mean, you know, San Francisco is an extreme case, but rents went down a lot in the past couple of years. Uh, I mean, who knows, maybe they'll go back up to a degree, but I mean, that's a very different story than say someone living in other parts, you know, other housing markets. And, you know, rent is usually the biggest, you know, rent or housing or something like that, right? It's basically everyone's biggest expense. So yeah, there's a lot of variation there. It's tricky. And then how you aggregate the different components into something we call like a price level. I mean, this is what makes the current situation interesting, right? I mean, the stuff that's gone up a lot, you know, used cars, right? It's starting to reverse, but that was the thing. How many people are buying used cars? Obviously, if, if you want to buy a used car, that's really bad for you. But, you know, most people in a given time are not doing that. Um, that's why it has a very low weight in the index. Uh, so, you know, it's very tricky. I mean, you can always point to sort of localized things like, well, what's the thing that really is, is mattering for in, inflation? What's driving it? And that's, you know, uh, yeah, as, as you said, it can be uh, it's very tricky to sort of map it out and how we should think about it. And, and what are your thoughts about the Fed taking on this inequality or the wealth gap? And how do you think through that problem? Do you, A, do you think it's a problem? And then, you know, as a corollary, if you do, what are the tools and levers we can pull to, to quote unquote, solve it? Yeah, I don't think the Fed really is in a position to do much about it one way or the other. I mean, essentially, I mean, they're sort of stuck in a weird situation where the main tool they have to make the economy grow more or faster, whether or not it works, is to increase asset prices, which obviously is going to have a disproportionate benefit for the people who own assets. But to the extent that this actually works and it leads to more growth, it's also going to have a disproportionate benefit to workers who are at the lower end of the income distribution. So, you know, what that means for inequality. I mean, basically, if you're worried about the impact of inequality, the Fed isn't really the right. It's not in the situation to fix it one way or the other, unless your solution is just to like tank the economy, everything, and then everyone goes, you know, everyone goes to zero. So we're all equal, at, you know. I, I completely agree with you. Like it's not within their mandate. They have a dual mandate. It's very straightforward. But it seems like the government doesn't want to use fiscal or legislative powers to address it, and they want to put it back on the Fed. And the Fed is saying what you're saying, which is. I don't understand how lowering interest rates is going to solve this problem. In fact, it's probably going to make it worse other than maybe utilizing some, and again, they got to use Congress for this, but doubling down on this universal basic income concept experiment that we've, that we've had the last 18 months, you know, potentially could be a way to solve it as well, right. I suppose. But that's a, that's a fiscal thing. I mean, correct. Yeah, if, correct. if the government correct. just gives everyone, if you give every person in the U.S. an equal amount of dollars, that is obviously going to have the biggest impact on the people who have the least amount of dollars to start with. So it's a universal program, but it has a big, you know, inequality reduction effect. I mean, the other thing you could do is there are ways of doing capital gains taxes or even, you know, wealth taxes if you're concerned about unrealized gains. I mean, there, there are definitely tools that exist that don't require a lot of innovation at this point because they're not that complicated if you're, if that's the concern. I still think it sort of brings you back to a weird situation of, okay, if the Fed, you know, if the model for how you get an economy out of a downturn is you inflate asset prices and make it cheaper to borrow, that is going to inherently be inefficient compared to a lot of other things. And I think that's like the underlying problem here. I don't think it's the Fed's fault. It's, you know, that's what they can do. Um, so, but it's more the fault of if you rely on that mechanism as your main 
you know, business cycle management response because it doesn't seem like it's, we've already seen it doesn't work particularly well. And, uh, you know, I hope we'll move on from that. I think the, I, I like to think that we've learned something from the pandemic and that what we've learned is that we actually have much better tools available if we want to. So are you an advocate for quantitative easing? I mean, you mean like the Fed buying bonds and stuff? I mean, I think it's fine. Right. I don't know. I think compared to what else was done in the you know, CARES Act and its follow-ons, in other words, the checks, the enhanced unemployment, um, even the Paycheck Protection Program loans, which I'm, I'm, I feel like it's a lot harder to evaluate the impact of those, but like all of those things, I think, had a much more direct impact than the Fed saying we're going to buy $80 billion of treasuries a month and $40 billion of mortgage bonds. I don't think those things are bad necessarily. I mean, I think one thing we've learned is, you know, it's sort of fitting with what we were talking about, just the economy as a whole, but there seems to be an asymmetry where the Fed is a lot better and not just the Fed, but central banks are just a lot more effective at shutting off growth and creating serious problems for the financial plumbing than they are at doing things that actively boost growth. And so it might be that they're sort of in a position where the thing that they need to do just to keep things going kind of smoothly looks, you know, based on historical perspective to be you know, some crazy radical monetary easing experiment. And in reality, it's just like, this is what just has to be done to keep you know, everything ticking over. I don't know if that's the case, but I mean, that seems like a reasonable possibility. And given the, the state of demographics, call it in America, does this, you know, specter of stagflation and what Japan has experienced over the last 10 or 20 years concern you at all? Well, I think Japan's actually done pretty well. Like, I don't think they've had stagflation or, or even, I mean, they've had a long period of you know, essentially price stability where it was just been sort of flat for a long, like the price levels been flat, which compared to everywhere else in the world where prices rise sort of two or 3% a year or whatever is a big difference. But I mean, the average there are a couple ways of looking at it. One is like, what is the average amount of sort of inflation adjusted consumer spending per person in Japan? How has that evolved? And actually it's, it's pretty good. I, I wrote, I wrote about this a few years ago at this point, back when I was at the financial times, but it actually looks pretty good compared to most other countries since, you know, the bubble peaked in, in 1990, because essentially the slow growth you see in Japan in the aggregate largely reflects the fact that population growth has been much slower. Um, that also is shows up in sort of the GDP per capita data. So like, you look at GDP per capita, you look at consumption per capita, whatever, like Japan actually looks fine. And they have really no in-migration whatsoever. Right. I mean, I think yeah. like in many ways, actually, they've done remarkably well, all things considered. I think that quite frankly, compared to other societies facing those kinds of pressures, they probably wouldn't do as well as what we've seen in Japan. Um, I mean, the U.S. has a, also a very different demographic outlook. I don't know how, how reliable these forecasts are, but if you look at what the U.N. puts out, you know, every couple of years, they're world population prospects. Basically, the US population is going to continue to grow for the end of the century. At least that's the standard forecast. And in fact, it's not just going to keep growing, but in fact, the you know working age population, broadly speaking, is going to keep growing. So, which is a very different picture than what we've seen in Japan, where the working age population has shrunk dramatically and the total population has shrunk. Um, so the US looks very different. Uh, you know, Australia and Canada are similar to the US. Europe looks a lot more like Japan, actually. Mm -hmm. China is even more extreme. Um, so, you know, I think it really depends on which society you're looking at. But I think, you know, compared to much of the rest of the world, the U.S. is probably in reasonably good shape. How much of that depends on your forecast of immigration and stuff is, is trickier. I don't know exactly how they, the U.N. included those forecasts. I mean, I know that that affects some of their projections, but I don't know how much. And you know, that could change either way. But 
I, I mean, I think, yeah, if you're worried about, I mean, A, I would say don't be worried too much about Japan because Japan's a pretty good outcome relative to sort of the, the demographic headwinds they've had. And then the other thing is that that's not the situation the U.S. is going to be in, for better or worse, just because our demographics look quite a bit different. So here's here's the next unfair question spurred from that statement. It, over the last 20 years, ballpark, there really hasn't been a better trade than just to buy domestic equities in the U.S., right? Is there anything, in your opinion, that changes that allocation from here for the next 20 years? Oh, man. Uh, that's a tough question. I mean, you know, not investment advice. I well, Of course really not. But, drawn, but I, I, you know, I feel very, you know, not capable of doing that sort of thing. I mean, I suppose the, the argument that would make sense is if you just think that even if, broadly speaking, the U.S. is probably going to be the best place to be invested in, that the valuations are a lot different. I mean, it's kind of a running joke at this point, but like, you know, the US-Japan difference, for example, is pretty extreme uh, in valuation, especially when you think that like a lot of the companies in Japan are global global and successful. And, um, you know, I mean, this has been true for a long time. In fact, it's gotten, the discount has gotten bigger over time, which means that clearly it's a bad trade to think that it will close. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think, I, I think that a lot of the, I mean, the thing that's interesting is, right, you can talk about the US economy as being drive, the driver of, you know, the stock returns, but it's, it's not even that. It's also the fact that the U.S. companies, which is really what matters for this question, are been, have been so, you know, world-beating in so many things. Um, I don't know if that, I mean, there are a lot of reasons to be wondering if that's going to be true. I mean, some of that, I mean, a lot of the most profitable ones are, seem like there's potentially more regulatory risk coming up for those companies. I don't know how that's going to play out. Maybe it's already priced in. I have no idea, right? But I think... I think the flip side is if you're if you if you're going to make an argument that something is going to really displace that, it, there's a, I mean I, I feel like it would have to rely on something about valuation of U.S. companies right now being high, and then you have to make a really this is where I think it's much harder is that you have to make a compelling case that companies elsewhere are poised to do really well. So beyond any sort of just valuation differential, and that I think is a harder. I mean it's not an impossible case to make, but I don't really know why we would feel confident about it. I mean, people used to talk about, you know, Chinese stocks or whatever, but I think we've seen pretty clearly over the past, you know, month or so that the Chinese government does not actually care if the stock market is doing well, if they have other priorities like maintaining control uh, over key industries. So I think that someone looks at that and sort of brushes it off as a foreign investor, that would be a big mistake. I mean, it's certainly possible that you can make a lot of money you know, specifics or tactical trades, but I think the long-term outlook is not obviously encouraging because it seems pretty clear that's not a priority of, of, of the government there. So, I mean, your question, I don't really know. I mean, I feel like the most, you know, I said like the, the ground I'd be most confident in if you were to say moving out of U.S. stocks is just at the valuation differentials, but like those valuation differentials are also based on historical performance that makes sense. And if you don't see a reason why it's going to change, then that differential makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, this is why I don't feel confident making trades or, you know, <laughs> giving specific advice. I don't know, it seems, you can sort of justify <laughs> current pricing relatively easily if it turns out to be wrong, so. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair response to an unfair question um, is, how I would, is how I would put it. What are your thoughts about wages being essentially flat since the 70s? Is there a way to, I mean, does it matter? And if it does matter, is there a way to move 
those wages up so that more, more people can participate, as you said earlier, in being asset acquirers as opposed to just spending all of their income on goods and services to, to maintain their base quality of life. Sure. I mean, so I guess I would say just on that last point, I think we actually should want more people spending on goods and services. I mean, I think if we're talking about why the growth has been weak and sort of the dynamic that the, the Fed and other central banks have found themselves in, it's precisely because there hasn't been enough spending on goods and services. And so to the extent that spending on goods and services has been supported by what had been essentially unsustainable borrowing or dissaving by consumers, you know, we would hope, we should hope that more income to people would just get more spending, but less debt for that spending. And so I think that would be, I think the, the goal we should want here. The, on the first part, I mean, I, so the, the, the data kind of tell different stories when what exactly you're looking at here. If you look at, you know, uh, compensation per hour, that actually has not, I mean, that's basically gone up, you know, inflation adjusted right in line with sort of overall measures of, you know, GDP. Um, it's thing, the thing that looks really bad is essentially median wages. And so, which is kind of a couple things, which is one is that you're basically seeing a big increase in income inequality, um, right? So the average is growing in line, but the median is not. So that means that basically you're having people at the top who are doing very well and other people are doing you know, much less. There's also an extent to which you've had a shift in pay from wages to, you know, other benefits. A lot of that is healthcare costs. So, you know, a typical worker might not feel that they're getting a better deal because they probably aren't, but strictly speaking, you know, the fact that their health, the, the, the healthcare bill of their employer is shouldering has gone up a lot over time technically means that like that worker pay is, you know, the worker pay in other words is going somewhere. It's just not going to the worker, unless of course you work in the healthcare industry uh, in affiliated, you know, areas. So that's sort of interesting dynamic there. Um, yeah, I guess those are the, the, the sort of the, the main tricky points there. And then, I don't know, and then there's like the per hour element, which is that in general, people are working less than in the past. That's not necessarily by choice. It's a lot of that is, you know, but a lot of it, you know, some of it probably is. And so those are sort of the three things I think that would sort of point to, you know, how to interpret those, those data. Um, I do think that it like clearly is the case that for a lot of people, certainly in the, the bottom half, the income distribution, you haven't really seen any inflation adjusted gains at all, more or less in pay. Um, and I think that explains a lot. I think at the end of the day, it reflects, you know, political choices sort of at a very broad level. I mean, if, if workers had more power, whether that's, you know, how we talk about tax and spending, whether it's the, the ability to extract better demands from employers because labor markets are tighter. I mean, there's different ways of looking at it. Um, I think we'd see some changes in those numbers potentially. Arguably, it's something that, again, we're sort of starting to see now potentially, which could be interesting. But, um, you know, it's tough to say. I mean, there's a, the Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes a data set on the number of strikes per year. And it's really interesting to go back through that, especially if you take out, um, and you can sort if you want by like very granular, like what exactly the strike is. If you take out teachers, which is which went up a lot in the in the year or so before the pandemic, what you basically see is this huge peak in the 60s and 70s, and then nothing. <laughs> you know, by the 90s, it's like, and then we get to the 2000s, it's like basically zero. Um, 
Now, I mean, you could argue that maybe we don't want to have that kind of adversarial relationship. It's probably more efficient to not do that. Maybe there's you know ways of coordination between workers and business owners, managers, the way you see in some European countries or Japan. That's a tougher question I don't have a strong view on, but that chart, I think, is very indicative of the sort of broader shift and how much of that is you know, specifically what politicians voted on or more broadly a shift in society of changes in power. But I think that's definitely related to uh, the trend you identified. We're, we're getting close to time, and I'm, I'm going to ask you another unfair question. I understand your macro level. I'm not asking you for investment advice, but moving forward, what are things that investors need to view as signs or signals? And, and what is just noise and smoke? I mean, what are things that you think actually really matter for the financial system, the economy, et cetera? That's a, that's a big question. It's a good question. Um, I mean, I th- so the, the Fed every quarter publishes uh, the financial accounts, which looks at basically all of the levels of assets and liabilities of households and businesses and stuff, as well as the transactions that occur every quarter. And there's a lot of really interesting things you can look in there and they're very helpful for thinking about what's going on. You can look at, you know, are businesses actually willing to borrow? Are they, to the extent that they're borrowing, is it things like, are they just doing, you know, buybacks or are they actually doing CapEx or, um, you know, what are households up to, right? Like the extent to which households are getting richer, you know, you can actually look in pretty granular detail, like which households are getting richer? How are they getting, what kind of assets are, are the reason they're getting richer? Are they increasing, you know, what are they doing with debt? Things like that. And I think that's actually very helpful for understanding. I think one of the reasons I'm relatively optimistic about the potential of the next decade is because, you know, looking at the, what's happened with household balance sheets over, you know, since the financial crisis, it really has been a big change. And especially recently with, with the money that was paid out. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and I think really something to, to watch. I mean, businesses are also in really good balance sheet shape. Their debts are up a lot, but so are their holdings of cash. And so, you know, at least on average, you know, they're in the best liquidity position they've been in many, many decades. And so, you know, that combination of households and businesses being really primed potentially to, you know, finance a lot of CapEx and, and spending, I think is potentially very encouraging. And that's like, those are the kind of things that I think are really helpful to be looking at. Obviously a lot of other stuff, but I think, if, you know, if I pick one, I mean, that's, that's really good. And are you, how do you think through this parabolic expansion of tech and tech services and what that means for, to your point, you know, goods and services consumption? That's a tough question. Um, I mean, I think, so one thing that, you know, you don't hear as much anymore, but there definitely was a time a few years ago when a lot of people who worked in tech were saying that we're vastly underestimating economic progress because these things aren't being counted. I think that's, that is is wrong, but I think what's interesting is that you are seeing, um, you know, the share of business investment that's going to software and research is just much higher than it used to be, and it seems like a pretty steady trend. I think the flip side that I think is less appreciated is that there's actually a lot of physical investment that's required at this point as well. I mean, data centers, you know, there's a lot, <laughs> you have to do a lot of work to actually build data centers. It requires a lot of material inputs, whether it's, um, you know, including you know, metal, but also chips and other stuff. And so it's, it's um, you know, very sophisticated components. So I think that's, I mean, what we've seen actually, um, I mean, the past couple of years that the biggest CapEx spenders are in fact tech companies building data centers. Um, mm-hmm. That's been a huge driver at the, you know, at least those are the individually biggest. I mean, the, you know, overall CapEx, that's not, you know, the main thing. But so I think that's, you know, how that shows up in consumer spending often is, is it doesn't, right? Like, you know, a lot of the stuff is, is free for the consumer, but it shows up in, 
businesses spending on those products. And so that shows up in profits. So, I mean, it definitely is being counted by the government, uh, you know, in, in the sort of the normal ways. You just have to know where to look. And I think, you know, to the extent that this stuff is free for consumers, it should enable more consumer spending on things that are not free, uh, which, you know, so that, I mean, and in fact, consent that the people who work in these industries are getting paid a lot, like that also, again, that should flow through. So the fact that it hasn't, or, you know, as much as we might hope for, I think isn't so much a reflection on tech companies per se, but in sort of the broader economic context are operating. Matt, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to join us. Um, I definitely want to have you back on because I could ask you a bunch of more unfair questions. It's my favorite thing to do. Um, but could you tell folks if they're interested in, in learning about the newsletter and the, the great content you're producing, how they can go about finding you? Absolutely. The newsletter is called The Overshoot. You can go to the overshoot, O-V-E-R-S-H-O-O-T dot co that's the website you can also if you want to search for it you know use my name type it and type in the words you'll find it that way um it's there's a, a free list you subscribe to which will get you occasional posts there's also a paid subscription option which will get you access to everything uh definitely hope you can all check it out awesome matt thanks for joining us really appreciate it thank you very much for having me thank you for joining the conversation on colloquium This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.